Welcome to the Media Mavens Podcast. The Media Mavens Podcast is where you'll hear the latest and greatest trends, topics, and tribulations with industry leaders. And here is your host of the Media Mavens Podcast. She is the original Media Maven, Sarah Miller. Hi, this is Sarah Miller and Marjorie DeHay with Media Mavens Podcast. We're here with Global News Watch on Media Mavens today with Mick Mulroy, National Security Analyst for ABC and former paramilitary operations. Hey, Mick, how's it going? Good. Great. I was, Greetings from snowy Montana. <laughs> and we're from sunny LA. I'm so excited to have you back on. I know we've covered so much on the Middle East, and but I, with current news on Russia and the summit, we want to get an update from you of what's going on between the China-U.S. relations, what's happening with Taiwan now. Kind of give us an update. I want to kind of let you give us what's going on. And then I know we have a lot of questions we want to cover with you on this topic. Yeah. So uh, as stated in our national security strategy, China is our number one, what we're calling now, strategic competitor. Right. So we had the president speak virtually, have a virtual summit, Biden and Xi. And they discussed a whole litany of issues, of course. I know we're going to specifically talk a lot about the Taiwan issue, but I'm sure it was much broader and included economics, potential ways to work together, also the major concern on Chinese espionage when it comes to our commercial and industrial capacity. Taiwan, of course, it's a concern that uh, the Chinese may be building up to be able to take back Taiwan. Essentially, it's been independent since 1949 when the nationalists fled there after the communist takeover of mainland China. So that's going to be a big issue, but it's also what they're doing throughout the world. They are fairly predatory when it comes to how they deal with particularly developing countries, which are pretty vulnerable. And they're also not one that really cares that much about human rights. And this administration does. So there's, there was, I'm sure there was a lot of discussions on all those economic security, human rights, potentially even the, the Olympics that are coming up. And the administration is actually talking about doing a diplomatic boycott, which I, I think is distinguished between actually boycotting or with our athletes. But anyway, I think all those things came up and the security part of it was pretty substantial. And I think that's what we're going to talk about today. I know what came out that Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, he said managing this relationship the like potentially the biggest geopolitical test of the 21st century. And what is different about what I find interesting is that United States and China have always been at odds. The people, the economies, how are being governed, but the US and China are always jockeying for influence, you know, technology, maneuvers and military advancements, space, land, cyber, hacking, but we're also major trade partners. I mean, how I mean, I know that's a complicated line to walk. But how are we faring with all of this, given we're partners, but we're at odds for more tech and military control? Yeah, I think that's a super important factor, right? Everybody keeps talking about is this another Cold War, which is obviously talking about the the scenario that the United States and the Soviet Union were in, where we didn't want to actually have a confrontation because it would have been catastrophic, right? The whole bad concept, mutually assured destruction, which probably kept at least during the Cold War, us from having a direct confrontation. But then we had a lot of small conflicts with the Soviet Union. But we weren't intertwined economically with the Soviet Union, like we are, just to your point, a question with China. So I think that's going to be a different part of the equation when it comes to what version of a Cold War this would be. And I don't think it's going to be the same. Both the United States and China want to actively avoid uh, an actual conflict. 
as strong as the United States is, as much. I think the Chinese spent about $3 trillion uh, over the last decade to build their military. They're still not a match to the United States, be it uh, conventional or nuclear. But either way, nobody wins in a knife fight. Nobody wins in a nuclear war fight, right? So, you know, at the end of it, when the, the smoke clears, everybody's lost. And because we are such strong trading partners, the, and I'm not going to pretend that I'm a global economist because I'm not, but to the extent that it touches on security, because of that, it's less likely that either country would actually want a conflict because it would decimate both economy and cause massive shortening of supplies, goods, fuel, all these things that both countries rely on, mostly China for selling it and the United States for consuming it. But I do think that a factor in in the in the issue that would make it something similar to a cold war. Interesting. You know, Mr. Chi went so far to say that the East is rising, the West is declining, and then when you start to look at how rich China has become, and then the number of people, what do you think? Just you know, in your vast experience, could have helped the U.S. During the discussions that what are our advantages? You said military advantages, but honestly, a trade war would would it hurt the U.S. more than China? I'm not sure. I think it would hurt both countries to the point that it would be advantageous. The the thing is, the United States, as you all know, is a democracy and it's the people who are elected are immediately responsive to the people that elected them. Right. So if all of a sudden and you're seeing it with inflation right now. Inflation keeps going up and it's tied to some, some kind of economic trade war with China. China can weather it because they're a dictatorship and president for life and one party rules. And if you disagree with them, you end up going away. Right. So they have that kind of political ability to weather a storm that would be a major disruption in the world economy. So to, to that extent, if you want to call that an advantage, being that they're, they're not as responsive to the will of the people, they have that advantage, but it would still hurt them and it would retard their growth, which they, you know, they have a hundred year plan. So they have a where they want to get in and, and having an actual conflict with the United States, even if it's just economic, would, would hinder them getting there for sure. I think what the thing is that I want to talk to you about is, you know, China wants a bigger voice in global leadership. We all know this. They have their own version of Western dominations with who World Bank financing. And I you know the ties to other coalitions. China, Iran, Russia, Cuba. But I, I, what they're commenting on is their frustration with Western bullying and meddling, preventing them from all of this, which I, I and maybe you have the answer to this because I saw a thing on here that somebody made, they made the comment that they're arresting Chinese that are in scientists and stuff because they feel like they're peddling. They're Chinese born scientists working in America and they're being arrested of accusations, concealing ties to the Chinese state and all this stuff. I mean, I feel like it's not a, I mean, where is your, do you have any insight? We're not bullying and meddling, but it's all about the labor on this whole thing as well. And arresting Chinese born scientists because just because they work in America, which just it seems so messed up on so many levels. So when it comes to, you know, one person's bullying is the other person's human rights advocates, right? Yeah. So, you know, the United States and, you know, we're not perfect ourselves. We have our own issues. But, of course, we talk about our own issues and they're on every media channel in the United States every day. So it's not like we hide them. I and mean, you can you can follow them on Twitter to your heart's content, although I don't necessarily recommend it. 
But in China, that's not the case. So they, if you disagree with the, the government, they cut you off from social media. You actually have a citizen score, right? If you don't get a high enough score, if you're not getting credit, you're not, uh, you're not able to do a lot of things that the rest of them can't. So it's not even close when it comes to the, to the human rights issue. They're not even trying, and we are imperfect, but trying is the way I would, I would put it. But when it comes to the espionage, so they focus mostly on economic espionage, where the United States doesn't. The United States believes its companies can compete, and they need to compete. So we don't go out trying to steal secrets to then pass to Microsoft or Apple or whoever. It's not what the U.S. intelligence community does. We just rely on our, our companies just to be better than others. And I think you can look at that. We have you know, a majority of the, the major companies in the world. China, I think, is very good at duplication, not so much at innovation. So they spend a lot of time trying to steal the secret of Microsoft and Apple and you know, Tesla or whoever. And that's to your point. They use scientists because they have so much leverage over them. When they go overseas, particularly to the United States, they leave behind families. And if they don't do what they're asked to do, sometimes they can take out the consequences in their family. So the United States still has an obligation to protect ourselves from espionage. Although we don't do the economic espionage, we certainly would prevent it from happening to our country. And I think that's where you're seeing when you see people detained for their actions in the United States. I don't know specifically of an incident, but I would be very confident that the FBI would not do that unless they had evidence that they were conducting this. And they have to present it in our court system. And it has to be reviewed by an impartial judge. So if they are being arrested, they're more than likely committing espionage on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. So they're saying, like, I read this article, I think it was at New York Times this morning, you know, that the pub, these public policies are reinforcing a zero-sum dynamic in the world economy now. And that China's growth and prosperity is comes at an expense of workers and economic opportunities here in the U.S. I mean, the Chinese are coming in to create their own brands. It's all about the economics of our technology, our investments in Silicon Valley. But do you feel that, I mean, I know there's been talk in the next decade that we're moving into another Cold War. You know, China's built up a bigger military presence, more planes. Do you feel, is it really, does it narrow it down? This sounds really stupid, Mick, but is it just, an ego play, or do you really think it's because their growth and prosperity is hindered because of our expense of what we're doing here with economic growth? So I don't know that their growth is hindered by us. In fact, we're such a huge consumer of what they produce that I think we're kind of an indispensable, in a way, partner to them. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can go anywhere in the United States. I know it's, we have inflation now, but you can buy pretty inexpensive stuff from these major superstores. And if you go in there, it's all made in China. Right. So I know there's and I think it's legitimate that Americans get concerned that we don't make anything in the United States anymore. But we also like cheap stuff. So it's kind of a two way street. Right. We like to buy. I mean, I don't know how much I've heard this and then I don't quote me on it, but it's like how much an iPhone would cost if we actually made it in the United States. And Americans like to buy stuff. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's not like Russia, which just likes to be. And I know we've talked about this past podcast, but just likes to be the opposite of the United States. They just like to be whatever they can do to be the antagonist of the United States. China is really about China, and they have a huge population that they have to power, literally. So they spend a lot of time trying to get natural resources, and a lot of times it's from developing countries. I mean, we produce a lot of the, the carbon that causes uh, climate change. They produce twice as much. So 
It's a good thing the United States actively participated in you know the climate summit, but China didn't. And until we get them, I know we're shifting base a little bit, but it has to do with the economics. As they develop more as a country, they're going to produce more greenhouse gases unless we come up with some kind of alternative. And China needs to be a part of the, the solution, if you will, at least the mitigation of what's happening in the world ecosystem, not just economy, because they are the number one producers of the problem. And they, to your point, are developing an economy that's developing fast. And with the economy developing, so is the the issues of you know climate change. Well, this goes back to what we've talked about in previous podcasts with you, White House truth versus ground truth. I know that applies a little bit more to Afghanistan with the guys on the ground, but China's foreign minister made it very clear recently that the major strategic misjudgment is all in the Americans, and they're the ones behind the both nations deteriorating relationships. And he made a comment, he who tied the knot must untie it. And they're saying, we as Americans are the ones responsible for this relationship. And is that kind of fueling into our next subject because of that outlook and impression or opinion from China of how, why we're concerned about the entry of the dangerous like issues over Taiwan? I mean, I feel like it's just like this moving train without a stop to it. Yeah, I don't know what he means by us tying the knot. China has been doing very aggressive things throughout the Pacific. They've actually just, here's an example, right? So freedom of navigation throughout the international waterway. Well, if you build an island that wasn't didn't exist and then make it China and then say that's our territory and you can't come next to it, I mean, that's like obviously super aggressive and it's deliberately trying to prevent other countries, their freedom of navigation by creating a, an island that didn't exist and then actually calling it your own country. So that's, a, that's one example. Certainly, if we started doing that, I'm sure they'd have a problem with it. And they are just because it happens to be near China, even though it's not in China. So that's just one example of what they've done. And I think a lot of their neighbors, you know, in the past, the, the best way for the United States to compete and we're going to use the word compete because we don't want to have a conflict. Compete is to do it with partners, right? So you saw the, the alliance between Australia, the United States, and the UK. That's great. And we need to do more like that. And we need to expand it. And we need to have the like-minded democracies of the world come together to be a, a block, like a trading block, right? So economic power is, is together and to push back against China. We don't want to have a conflict with China. That's a terrible idea. Anybody that says that probably never been in a conflict because that would be incredible and incredible in a bad way. So we need to compete and we need to contain and we need to, not just with China, but the United States still stands for international human rights and individual liberties. And we need to, to hold them to it, you know, like this young tennis star in China that's just disappeared. But it's also much broader than that. I mean, there's a whole population of Muslims that essentially get assigned to the modern version of a concentration camp because they're because of their religion in China. The Uyghurs. So that's I mean, it's this is, this is going to be something that stays with the United States and China. And it just is we need to compete. We need to we need to be successful, but we need to avoid an actual conflict. And this is really interesting because you know they've said it's like the terrible 2020s where where China's just as you say is making this incentive to grab lost lands, etc. But a lot of this is historical. This battle about Taiwan and the U.S.'s you know strategic 
ambiguity in addressing Taiwan. Maybe you can give our listeners a little bit of that backstory and why Taiwan has been such a tense point in U.S.-China relations. Yeah. So when when there was a civil war in China in the late 40s, it ended with the, the communists being successful. The nationalists led to Taiwan. And since that time, there has been two Chinas, if you will. The Communist Party of China, which started very slow, developed an economy over a long period of time. And then Taiwan, which is a very modern, it's 23 million people. It's about 100 miles off the coast of China. It's an incredibly advanced, they, they produce some of the most advanced microchips in the world. And of course, that means they have a lot of money to spend on their defense, right? And they've been living since 1949 with this idea that China would eventually bring it back into the complete compliance of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, until recently, that was a lot of rhetoric. Every Chinese leader said that was the case, but it was really not feasible militarily. China didn't even have enough boats to get there. They didn't have the ability to fly over the sea or get away from their coastal defenses. If they got there, they weren't very skilled in combined arms, which is, you know, using like the army and the air force, navy and the same operation and invading a country and holding a country and fighting back resistance. The verdict's still out of whether they can now, but they have, they have spent an incredible amount of money to do just that with the idea they want to be able to militarily take back Taiwan. So the military, you know, my former colleagues have been, if I'm looking at this from a, as an analyst, have been very much in the camp that they believe it is inevitable. So Admiral Davidson, the former Pacific commander, said he believed it would happen within six years and they'd be capable. I'm not sure if that's the intelligence estimate, but it seems that many of my colleagues in the Pentagon are now viewing this as something that they will do if they believe they have the capacity to do so. I think other political analysts and other analysts would differ and say it is not inevitable. So I don't know what the answer is, but right now, that's why you're going to hear a lot of discussion about what's called the Taiwan Relations Act, which was like uh, 1979, like the late 70s, where the United States said, okay, you are an independently governed entity, didn't really view it as a country, but we did everything we could to set it up as that. We didn't say, and this is important, that we would come to their military aid, but we said we'd do a lot to enhance their ability to defend themselves, which provided weapons, munitions, and training. However, what has been the policy since 1979 in the United States is called strategic ambiguity. And what that means, essentially, is we want China to guess. So they don't know whether they're actually going to have to fight the United States to take Taiwan, which would not be good. Or we're just going to say, okay, well, it's going to be hard enough to explain to the American people why we just sent all their sons and daughters to fight for Taiwan when most Americans that aren't in your listening would say, where the hell is Taiwan and why are we fighting for, right? So I don't know the answer. I don't think anybody has a strategic ambiguity. It would be hard. I think the military experts say, if China built the capacity, and you'll start seeing amphibious ships being built so they can make the journey. You'll start seeing specific types of aircraft that can cover their assault onto the, and then, then the troops necessary. If you start seeing that, then I think we would, it, it would indicate to us that it's, it's likely to happen. And then we'd have to determine how would we defend them? Would it be worth it to us? Because when you have two very nuclear powered countries, it might be hard to win, but it's also hard to lose 
because the other side can always go nuclear and then everybody. So I guess it's not hard to lose. It's, it's, it's just not a good proposition. So it's, it's not just, can we beat them conventionally? Is, is it worth it to us that this thing escalates that they're lobbing, you know, nuclear weapons in Hawaii because we have now successfully repelled them from Taiwan? And, you know, anyway, we hope we don't get into any of these scenarios, but I think we'll be looking very closely at the capacity they build. And, and whether it, it indicates an invasion. Is this other question, Mick, this may be a little bit far-fetched, but, you know, remember, we've been talking to you a lot about what's going with the Taliban taking over Afghanistan. The biggest issue was getting the Americans out. Taiwan's saying that China's condemning all the moves that Taiwan's making, you know, opening embassies around the world, you know, their political defense, they're calling everything they do condemned it as an egregious move. If it comes down to this, where we do have to pick and choose, do we protect them or not? Are we going to be in another situation where our goal is get the Americans out, get the Chinese Americans, American citizens out? I mean, at the end of the day, it's all about saving lives versus getting into a conflict that we can't win or lose to what you just said. It's not a win-win for anybody. And I know the Americans, we as United States, don't want to get in the middle of it. But like you said, how do we just stand back and not protect other human lives, especially when there's a lot of Americans over there? And there's a lot of Americans where the Taiwan embassy is, but China's now saying every move they make is egregious. It's like, like a gambit. It's just like a chess game with China now until they become in a checkmate position. Are we going to eventually pivot to say, okay, our goal is protect the Americans because we can't get in the middle of a nuclear war between these countries anyways? Or, I mean, where are we looking at that right now? Or is that too far down the road to really talk about? You know, I, having served at many embassies, there's always a plan to evacuate. Unfortunately, sometimes the circumstances overcome the actual plan, like the saw in Afghanistan. I think if we start seeing that the Chinese are going to invade, that the U.S. will do everything, even if we are going to come to their aid, the last thing we want to do is fight with American citizens on the ground next to us, right, or diplomats. So we would be ready to remove all unnecessary American staff and then eventually just pull out. Either way, I would assume whether we're going to oppose the invasion or not, because we wouldn't want to have to deal. And obviously, we wouldn't want to see Americans get killed in them. In the mix of this stuff, I'm sure Taiwan would not like to see Americans leave because that's that's an indicator that we may not be willing to defend, help defend them. Now, although it is it is a sizable difference, we're talking millions and millions in uh, the Chinese National Army and a couple hundred thousand maybe in Taiwan. They can still cause a lot of grief. They have a very significant advanced weapon system, aircraft. They can take strikes into mainland China. China has to consider, do they want to end up with a with an island that's in rubble, right? You know, yeah. is, is that really what you want to fight for? And then it's completely destroyed. Its economy is destroyed. Its, its infrastructure is destroyed and its people have been decimated. And, you know, congratulations, you know, Taiwan. So a lot of it depends on the willingness and the capacity of the Taiwanese people, right? That's another factor that the Chinese, they'll win, they'll win for sure. But, you know, will, will they win at the end of the day? It might not be much. You know, this is so interesting because I, I was talking to my son about World War II and we we're talking, you know, China was actually an ally of the U.S. So if this was, say, a war did start, it seems like our allies would shift. Like maybe Germany would now be our ally. Maybe Japan would now be our ally. How do you see that on a global scale? Like who would support the U.S. in this? 
Well, I hope our allies would. You're right. Because of what we did after World War II, two of our adversaries became two of our staunchest allies. And certainly Japan, when it comes to China, is a natural. I mean, they have they have a long-seated animosity, if not hatred, based on historic issues between the two countries. But, you know, we've also helped Japan build a country that has a very limited defense capability, you know, mostly because we didn't want to have a World War III. But it also ended up with a Japan that's relatively focused only on its own internal defense. Again, it's a lose-lose for everyone. And the United States, you know, is more responsive to their people. What I mean by that, the United States doesn't like wars of attrition. Every American service man or woman that gets killed, rightfully, is a big deal in our country. And if we start seeing uh, American servicemen and women dying, the people are going to get really pissed off and uh, hold their elected leaders responsible, just like you saw in the last uh, 20 years in Iraq. That isn't going to happen in China. I mean, I don't even know if they'll report the amount of casualties they have. So again, I don't want to make it sound like it's inevitable, because quite frankly, I don't know enough to say that it is. But I've talked uh, a lot to analysts that focus on this issue. I'm, you know, I was more of a seat counterterrorism Middle East person. And the military side believe that it's their job now that they have the intentions clear and the capabilities are starting to match, that they they need to view this as something that's going to happen. I guess it's to be prepared. A lot of the political analysts would say that a lot of it might just be reference. And they don't, at the end of the day, they would not benefit from, if it was a real fight, even if it was just the Taiwanese, from what it would take to take Taiwan. So, Chinese are saying that within the next few years, right now, a lot of the Chinese are siphoning companies' technologies, their trade secrets. They have access to more technology, more advanced technology and finances than we do here, United States. And they're saying one of their goals or they're aiming is to make China an American free technology country now, where they want to pivot and not lean on American technologies. They, they want to be an American free country and completely shove us away. But I find that that statement came out like a week or two ago. But then I know White House came out with it's inevitable within this next decade, we're going to end up in another Cold War with China. So I feel like we're back to playing chess with them. This is who's going to make that first move and be the best prepared that we can. So we know it's going to happen. And I guess there's really no way to prevent them from siphoning secrets. There's no way to prevent them from being an American free technology, which I feel if that is their goal, that puts us at a defense automatically if we don't have access to Chinese technology. So now I just, I feel like we're kind of back in that duck or rabbit season mode of which way to go. Yeah. So I don't know what they mean by an American free tech. I know they have a problem with social media because they like to control what's said by their own people, whereas in the U.S., we don't. I mean, we it's free speech. You know, we have a First Amendment. You know, essentially, every piece of technology that I'm familiar with in the world, or most of it, came from the United States. So if they really wanted to be American free, they probably wouldn't be trying to steal all our secrets, right? Because uh, they could invent it themselves. Yeah. But they're not that good at that. So, and that's, I think that's part of a free society. I don't think it's inherent in the United in American necessarily. It's, it's, it's freedom is inherent, I think, in American. So we're free to innovate. And we're also a capitalist system. So if you spend a lot of time and effort, you innovate something that people want to use, you get the benefits, right? Not so much in uh, a communist country. So I don't know how they would necessarily get off American technology. Maybe they, maybe they really mean they just don't want their people to have the ability to have direct access to the internet, challenge ideas. Yeah. They don't 
Well, well, what I think is interesting is just, I mean, the power of social media, I mean, it's the internet, we have no control over it, but I'm going to kind of direct this towards Marjorie as we're wrapping up because Hollywood, I mean, given, you know, we're all about being here in Hollywood and the messaging and then changing the narrative of stories is so critical. We just did a great podcast, uh, I think a week or two ago, Marjorie with Brian, Seth Hurst about what's your story, changing the narrative of the story. And Hollywood studios have all but stopped making movies with Chinese villains. One of the China's largest recent blockbusters is a government-sponsored epic. It's a victory with over the Americans during the Korean War. And I feel like Asia is the biggest place who wants Western culture, Western content, Western Hollywood. That's their big thing. I feel like that's sending a huge message by just stopping any productions that have to do with Chinese villains and blockbusters. And I think that's maybe more of a question, Marjorie, for you, just because I know, I mean, not Nick, we love you, but Marjorie's knows more about the Hollywood aspect, but I do feel oh, yeah. I do argue feel, with that. Yeah, but I feel like everything we do here does, no matter whether it's movies on the screen, social, military, press announcements from the White House, it all sends a message that could be misconstrued, taken that could trigger a, another Cold War within seconds. I mean, do you put a lot of weight in this with the Hollywood side from a legal standpoint and then from a production standpoint? Well, I think a lot of there had been a mass co-pros with China. There had been a lot of work going on, like really working the Hollywood with China angle. And I think this gets back to the whole issue, even that Mick brought up. It's the control of the media. So China controls the media. They'll block you off Facebook. They'll block you off social media. Yeah. They'll control the messaging. And whenever you have anyone controlling the messaging, that's the problem. So of course their movies are going to be better because they've kind of, you know, indoctrinated their whole culture into this kind of nationalistic message. And because it's communist, they can't basically rebel against it. Or if they are rebelling against it, it's there's serious consequences. So I'll kind of throw this back to Mick, maybe to wrap up. It's it's the media obviously control of the media. What do you see in 20 years happening with this U.S.-Chinese relationship if we don't do something now? I mean, it's only going to get more tense. It's on all fronts, right? So if we don't come up with a way to compete in a fair manner, the United States is always going to be at tensions with China because they, we've already talked about it. economic espionage is how they develop it, on the, i.e. steal it. The other part, which you know, is is just one factor until it's everybody's factor, which is the increase, increasing issues of climate, right? And as we get a larger population, we take up more resources and we produce more carbon. Hopefully, something comes online that, that helps us move past that. And innovation, which quite frankly is going to come from the countries of free people, I think, not the countries of oppressed people. But even if it does, you know, we have all these developing countries that are coming online. They're going to want to know why they're not allowed to develop when we did in China, quite frankly, is exploiting that. They are, they go into countries and they, and they take a lot of their natural resources and they pay them very little. That's going to probably be as much of a tension point as any kind of military because we might eventually get every country on earth realizing that we're essentially in a life raft and we need to do something or we're all going to perish, but we have to get China to do something. So that's going to be an issue. And then, of course, the military. You know, as they expand their military, we obviously have a global military. There's there's friction points, right? So if we decide to be in Taiwan and fight, 
with them, that's a friction point. If we have a conflict at sea because they've decided they own part of it, we are not going to ever cede to that. There's a lot of what could be a spark, for lack of a better term, a spark that can lead to a larger conflict. Hopefully, that would be contained and not expand. But there's a lot of things going on in the world that would make the China-U.S. issue more significant years ahead. And I would say that we do need to address it, but we need to address it with partners and allies. And and so it's not just the U.S. v. China. We need to have our partners in there. They have a vested interest just as much as we do. They're in life, in, in my analogy, they're in the life raft too, right? So that is probably the most effective way to push back against China is for them to realize that everybody they want to sell stuff to has an issue with what they're doing. Does that have a quick question for you, Mick, before we cut out here? I know we're up there in space and we're talking about military and here down on the earth, but you know, it's, it's, we've done a big space series and last year or like months ago and two of our conversations were all about space and with China and Russia. It's the wild, wild west up there. There's no laws. There's no, nobody owns space. So it's now becoming a, hey, no matter what happens down there, Everybody is a team player to advance space travel, economics, and space. But it's the Chinese. Let's just be honest. I mean, talking about lighting a spark, right now, nobody's really talking about what's going on up there with the space station because everybody's thinking, oh, we're going to get along up here. I mean, is there any insight to this? I mean, there's no military up there. It's like the Wild West. But is there anything that's a concern down here that we are maybe ignoring when getting the issue that, hey, we're also partnering with them and the Russians and everybody else up there in space to where our futures go in space technology and e-commerce. Satellite control, which spying drones, I mean, is this part of this big concern with this Cold War that we're trying to avoid? Or is this something completely different that's a different conversation for a different day on the podcast? Uh, so I'm no space expert, but I love talking about it. So I think we've accepted that the space domain is as much a domain as the air, land, and sea. So I don't know that we necessarily needed a space force, but it does indicate that we are taking it extraordinarily serious, right? We have a space command and now we have a space force. So either way, that you know, we have a space force. So I think that's driven by several things. And one of it is economic competition. There's things to be exploited in space. You know, whether it's another planet or another or an asteroid or the, all, all sorts of things that a country could benefit by being out front and first. So, and China wouldn't be doing it. And I don't think they would be doing it unless they thought they had an economic advantage from it. So to the extent we can work together, because we all are humans and we're trying to go into space and we might have to, you know, not to get too far afield from our discussion here, but we might have to have a whole life rack thing. Uh, yeah. So we should be preparing to do that, and it would be helpful if we did it together rather than fighting each other. But there's also, you already mentioned it, and I think that's a good point, Jerry. You know, you've got economic, or you got espionage from space with satellites. I actually have a lot of weapon systems that are in space for terrestrial fights, and they have to be dealt with. But we also are looking to colonize other planets. I mean, now it's, in the old days, it was just science fiction. Now everybody's talking about it. You know, NASA has a plan to get to Mars, you know, and we're not just going to Mars. We're going to Mars so we can figure out who the next. Uh, you know, actually, my dad worked for NASA, one of his first jobs. And so he used to tell me all this stuff. It, back in the, you know, the 70s and stuff, where they were looking at how to get to from CNN had a thing last night called Planet B, right? So my dad talked about it, it was just like Isaac Asimov books and my dad who worked at NASA. Now everybody talks. So I do think we need to view it as, a, as part of our national security, right? We need to protect ourselves and be 
the top of the heap when it comes to space exploration and capabilities. And then part of it should be viewed, well, you know, we're all human, we're all living on a planet, and we need to figure out, you know, what we can do in space and what we can't do in space. And I think the, I think the U.S. and China could come together and do good things. It's just whether we can get over our own, you know, parochial interests and, and work together. Now, it's all about when we chatted with like five or six of these guys, asteroid defense, robotics, all the tech and AI, it was about revolutionizing space commerce. And as of now, everybody's getting along, but it's now starting to become, you know, the evidence, you know, space cowboys, I can control your satellite and do so much up here that's not traceable. It's, hey, you take this side of space or this quadrant or this planet, we'll take this side who gets, who's racing to that future up there. And when we talked to these guys, they weren't overly nervous or paranoid, but they're very aware and coherent that they are up there discovering stuff that is a commerce with the Chinese. And as much as they want to get along, it is still a concern because there's no regulations up there. So I know it's top of mind for them, but their goal is to keep moving forward with the best relations they can. But it's starting to come up now, given what they're reading and seeing going on down here. Is this the best idea to be sharing space stations up there with them? I just think this is for such a much larger conversation to have you on. Maybe we'd have you on some of our space guys. But the questions we had with our space guys was what's going on on the ground that's affecting up there. So now I feel like we're asking you what's going on up there that's affecting us down here. So I think maybe maybe we do our next podcast and meet in the middle. Sure. Oh, I'd love to. I'd, I'd be all ears. So you wanted me to ask, answer a question, but I'd love to hear what they had to say. <laughs> yeah, no, no. It was so good having you on. I always love having you on and talking about what's going on in the world with you. I know you've got to run. Thank you so much for taking your time out with us right before the holidays. I want to kind of let everybody know, you know, you've been a tremendous monthly recurring guest driving the Global News Watch for us. We haven't really given anybody your contact. We've been very respective given, you know, your job. But is there a good email for people to reach out to you who have any questions or want to talk to you about the Lobo Institute? I wasn't quite sure where the best place for you was right now. So if they are interested in Lobo Institute, which is essentially a collection of like-minded people that focus on conflicts, mostly how to end them and deal with the consequences of them, they can go to LoboInstitute.org. That, uh, and they'll see, it's not just you know, CIA paramilitary tapes like me or SEALs like Oli, my business partner. It's also people that work for the UN and people work for the uh, NGOs and and those types. So it's 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 really, a, and then we, that, that's purposeful. And yeah, there's a lot of other SEALs and Marines and such, but that's purposeful. We, we it's a, it, The conflict spectrum is vast and it's not just military. So if they're interested in that, some people join because they like to write papers, you know, thought pieces on what we should do. And we have that. It's, you know, we have our own fellows. We don't have a political position. So we seek out people who come from every different perspective. And we don't obviously censor papers. You write it. It's your opinion. And that's good. Unless you're advocating for something that's war or something. I guess you could do that too. I probably shouldn't even admit <laughs> that. Actually but that's how people can look up. And then we have a NGO that deals with uh, ending the use of children and soldiers. It's called In Child Soldiering. And if they're interested in getting involved in that, they can do that there. I didn't want to like, I, I wanted this real quickly. I know we've got to wrap and we could pick this up later. Is that I know the child soldiering has been a major issue, not just around the world, mainly in the Middle East right now. Do you feel that could be another issue if we end up going back 
to another Cold War situation with China? Well, I mean, from the wars in the last 20 years, it's increased twofold in the Middle East. Children are being forced to fight, sometimes because the conflict drags on and now the adults are dead, and sometimes it's because they're cheaper. You know, it's kids, I mean, it's sadly ironic, will do what adults tell them to do, even bad adults. So they tend to just follow orders and make good soldiers. And now that the weapon systems are so light, they can be smaller and carry it, right? They don't eat as much. I mean, it's it's horrible. And now that we left Afghanistan, the Taliban's essentially going to, you know, because I'm part of that volunteer effort, we see this as a And a lot of my friends do too. The Taliban comes, they take the girls as brides, they take the boys as soldiers. And so Afghanistan is going to be a country full of child soldiers and forced brides because that's the way the Taliban does things. So it's it's an issue that's uh, not going away. It's only increasing. And if people are looking for a cause, there's not a lot of people that are in that arena, right? Because these are developing countries and these kids belong to people who have no say. That's why their kids are forced to fight. So they don't have, they don't have a lot of advocates, right? And the ones that have already been forced to fight need to be rehabilitated so they can actually function in society. And that's what we do. And uh, it's it's an NGO that we started and we work with groups all around the world that we know personally. And we know that they're on the ground doing good things and they don't have time to come fundraise or something like that. So we help them. But if any of your listeners are interested, those are the two things uh, I would say. And you can find the End Child Soldiering page on the Lobo Institute website. Perfect. Makers, so good having you on. We're looking forward to having you on again next month. Marjorie, thank you for the time. This is Sarah Miller with Media Mavis Podcast, and we'll see everybody soon. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Media Mavens Podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode or download past episodes, subscribe to the Media Mavens Podcast on your favorite podcast provider to learn more about the podcast or our guests. Log on to www.mediamavenspodcast.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.